our God, we do come before you at this moment to say we want to behold your son. And as we now open up and look into your word, I pray that you would speak to us. Would you teach us? Would you show us what you have for us as we consider the awe of Christmas? And that awe being your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone else like me that has a date for Christmas to begin? Anyone else? I got a few hands, yeah? My date is November 1st. And the reason is I have this massive playlist of Christmas songs I love to hear every year, and so I need to get all that time to be able to listen to all of them. So I force myself to wait till November 1st. Now, other people, it's November 12th, right? Some people want to get past Remembrance Day, and they begin the Christmas season. Um, still others, maybe it was Black Friday, right? American Thanksgiving, and then we shop till we drop on the Friday. Or maybe for you, it's December 1st, so a couple of days ago, and the Christmas season can officially begin. And so I, I'm excited that we're here in December, and, and, and we can kind of start singing some Christmas songs, because I, I think that really helps build our anticipation of Christmas. But here's the thing. Once that signal for you hits, the craziness starts. Right? It starts with buying gifts. Maybe it's visits with Santa, work parties, family gatherings, all the different Christmas events at the church, right? Christmas dinners and, and hampers and community group get-togethers. And once all that's done, you get to go and enjoy the Christmas Eve service. You feel like you can finally breathe and really truly prepare your heart for Christmas and consider the birth of Jesus. But then you've got to go home from the service and finish wrapping the gifts that you bought that aren't done yet and get the kids to bed. And, and then you sleep and then remember halfway through the night that I didn't buy the batteries for that toy because they weren't included. And you wake up and you unwrap the presents. You spend time together and now you can finally sit and contemplate the birth of Jesus. Oh wait, no, you got to stuff the turkey and peel the potatoes and boil and roast the potatoes, prepare all the trimmings and then sit down and eat this beautiful meal to celebrate Jesus, so now you can contemplate the birth of Christ. Although you don't have to wash the dishes and put them away, right? And then by the time all of that is done, you want nothing more than to sit and crash on the couch and watch or sleep through a Hallmark movie. Anyone relate to any of this? This is the Christmas season. And maybe not all of it, but some of it, you, I'm sure some of it kind of resonates for you. And when we sit down after all that, we think, you know, next year, I'm going to prepare my heart for Christmas sooner. And next year comes and the same routine happens. We get so busy, we forget the, that the advent or the coming of Jesus is a lot more than just a baby that was born. Now, I'm sure if I was to ask you the true meaning of Christmas, you would give me the right answer. But I'm convinced that for most of us, our first thoughts at Christmas aren't really of that baby in the manger. See, our problem is wayward and distracted hearts. Distracted by, by potentially helpful things, by very good things, but distracted nonetheless. Now, a couple of years ago, a good friend of mine encouraged me to read a book written by Paul David Tripp. It was appropriately titled Awe, A-W-E, Awe. And in the preface to this book, he, he goes on to talk about how he had recognized a misplaced awe in his life. 
And he figured that he wasn't the only one who had this misplaced awe. And in that preface, he says this, God intended us to be in awe of his creation. And in the first chapter, he argues that awe is everyone's lifelong pursuit. Often we have this unconscious desire, this unconscious pursuit of of things that are inspiring to us, things that confound us. He goes on to say that, you know, God created an awesome world. I mean, when was the last time you stopped to consider a bit of creation that you've never really looked at before? One time I was on a, a spiritual retreat with, with the children's ministry network I used to be a part of in, in Cambridge. And we were off at this little retreat center. And our activity was we were supposed to go off by ourselves, find something in creation, and just sort of study it and look at it. So I went for a little walk. And what I found was a dandelion. All right, as a homeowner, I hate dandelions. I mean, we live on an acre right now, and you can't control dandelions. But that day, I had this dandelion. I picked it up and started looking at it and examining it and just was all of a sudden intrigued and inspired by this dandelion, this weed. It was beautiful. The yellow was so vibrant, and, and you could also start to see how, how, how intricately designed and created it really was. God created an awesome world. But I think he's also created us with a capacity for that awe, In other words, he's created us to be able to take in the awe that he's created. Now, whether or not you have a musical bone in your body, you know the difference between good music and noise, right? The difference between Handel's Messiah and nails on a chalkboard. Those are totally different. We understand what beauty is comparatively. He goes on again in this first chapter to say that where you look for awe will shape the direction of your life. Where you're finding this awe, when you stop and consider all the incredible pieces of the world around us, it should create, cause us to be in awe. But what we focus on, what we go after, will shape our life. And we live in a world full of distractions. Some distractions are good, some are bad. Now, it seems like we're a people who are easily amused these days, right? Short video clips, reels, right? Memes, celebrity news. I mean, really, where are Taylor Swift and Jason Kelsey going to spend Christmas? I know you're all wondering. And yet, how many times have we heard the rich and famous say something like, how could it be that I have it all, and yet I feel so empty? See, being distracted by the new and the shiny, it leaves us no time for the the tried and the true. Leaves us no time for the things that really matter. And so really it's our desire this Christmas that we will take a step back. Some time to truly consider this baby in the manger. Put aside our distractions. Put aside our pursuits. And begin to see the awe of Christmas. What we find is that through this series we'll find that Christmas is not merely about the birth of a baby. It's actually about God himself stepping out of his glory and into his creation. And he did that in order to solve a problem that we created. And that problem is sin. So if this is our problem, you know, distracted, wayward hearts, then how do we fix it? How do we prepare our hearts for Christmas? Now the reality is we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it alone But the good news is that God can. And I want to tell you that God did and God does prepare hearts for Christmas. 
That's what he wants to do with us, even this season, is prepare our hearts for the coming of the Christ. But not even just for now, but for the whole year. This distractedness for us is not new. I mean, even in the first century, even long before, people were distracted. As we read through our, our Bible, the Jews were distracted. They'd gone on living life as if nothing big was coming. Probably in the same way I mentioned to you about, if you could tell me about the meaning of Christmas, you can give me the answer I'm looking for. They could do the same thing about Messiah. They could tell you about the Messiah who is to come. But I wonder how many of them were really truly expectant and waiting for the Messiah. This morning, I want to take a look at how God prepared the hearts of one particular couple in the first century. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. While you're doing that, I just want to give you a little heads up that what we're doing this Christmas season with the awe of Christmas is we're going to look at the Christmas story through the book of Luke. But actually, in January, we're going to continue on in Luke and do a flyover of the book of Luke, and we're going to end at Easter in Luke. So we're going to take a whole little overview of Luke and see what what Luke's gospel has to tell us, what it has to teach us about Jesus, about God. This morning, we want to look at this idea that that, uh, Jesus is the awe of Christmas, and his advent is what we're celebrating. So here we are in Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5. It says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here we meet this, this older couple, and they're called righteous before God. Now, does that mean they're perfect, that they're sinless? No, it, it doesn't. But it does mean they're the kind of couple that are worthy of attention. They're the kind of couple that as a young couple, you want to look up to them and see how things are going. Now, in this story, the narrative we're going to look at today, many of uh, Zachariah, many of his contemporaries were probably distracted. And if he, as we look through this passage, I want to look at just the different ways that Zachariah himself could have been distracted. Not that he was, but he could have been distracted. And I want to apply that to our own lives today and see, see if there's ways where we are distracted in our lives. Even in these first few verses, we find that Zechariah could have been distracted by Herod. This is Herod the Great. I can only imagine what it would have been like to, to live under Herod's rule. He wasn't exactly a nice guy. Um, it's been said this, he was of a stern and cruel disposition. In fact, to figure out, find out uh, how cruel Herod really was, he had two things that he wanted done when he died. The first thing is this, to execute the recently imprisoned Jewish elders so that there would be mourning in the nation while, when he died. So kill all these Jewish elders. And also to execute his son Antipater. Antipater. He wanted people killed when he died just so there'd be mourning for his death. So here's Zechariah and his contemporaries, fearful of Herod. And we can kind of get distracted by the politics around us, right? Politics, politicians, we should be aware of, we should be involved. We don't want to get sidelined and distracted by them. 
especially when we get drawn into the politics of nations that aren't even our own. And then Zechariah, he's a priest. He has a job. He's, he's got work. And so again, we can be distracted by our work. Now being a priest is a good thing. I think being a pastor is a good thing too. But often we let our work become our ultimate pursuit in life. Right? Are we, are we living to work or are we working to live? There's another thing here I want to say he's distracted by, but I want to be careful how I say this. Please take this the right way, the way it's intended. He's distracted by family or could be distracted by family. Not that he is. Here's the thing. Any meaningful relationship is going to take time. It's going to take quality time and it's going to take quantity time. But many couples carry an extra burden. Extra burdens become large distractions. We, we see here that Zachariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years and they had not been blessed with any children. I know many young couples who have found and gotten that news that, that you, you can't have children. And that is a burden to them. And, and my heart breaks for those, those, those young couples. For Zechariah, it's the way he understands that Elizabeth is looked at by the other ladies. Maybe they whisper about her when she goes to the market. I think it could have been difficult for them. Here we have a faithful servant of the Lord. And the one thing their heart had desired, a child they don't have. But even with Zechariah and Elizabeth, this distraction has gone back years before that. I mean, even think back to the Israelites in the desert, right? Moses is up the mountain meeting with God, getting the Ten Commandments. And what do the people do? Well, they're distracted, and they want Aaron to make this golden idol for them to serve. So Aaron makes this idol and comes out a golden calf, and here they are distracted by this piece of gold, whereas God is on the mountain with Moses. They're distracted by the new and the shiny. You want to see distracted hearts? Look at the book of Judges. All throughout the book of Judges, and everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. Distracted. And then there's the 400 silent years be between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? We call that the intertestamental period. Uh, Gotquestions.org puts it this way. The events of the intertestamental period had a profound impact on the Jewish people. Both Jews and pagans from other nations were becoming dissatisfied with religion. The pagans were beginning to question the validity of polytheism. And the Jews, however, were despondent. Once again, they were conquered, oppressed, and polluted. Hope was running low. Faith was even lower. We find they are distracted from the coming Messiah. Let's go on in our passage here. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. There's a big distraction. 
Zachariah's in doing his job, and next thing he knows, an angel just standing there. Anyone else be a little terrified? From what we read in the Bible, everyone's terrified by angels appearing to them, right? Because the first words they say afterwards always, fear not, do not be afraid. Well, here's a big, this is a big deal, actually, what, what Zachariah's doing. It, it sounds like no big deal, right? Because he's just a priest, he's going to go burn incense. No, no big deal. Except that the incense is burned in the morning before the offerings, and it's burned in the evening after the offerings. However, at this time, there's probably around 18,000 to 20,000 priests. And so they're chosen by lot who gets to do this burning of the incense. And so Zechariah, this is probably the only time he's ever done it or going to get to do it. This is a big deal. He's distracted by this special task he gets to do. And while he's there, this angel, we find this angel Gabriel appears to him, causes a level of fear, and he goes on, and the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel gives Zechariah some pretty sweet news. First of all, your prayer has been heard. Like God didn't just answer, is not just going to answer your prayer. He sent an angel to tell you your prayer has been heard. Now, this prayer likely isn't for a child. This prayer is not, I mean, these, are, these folks are older, right? It says they're advanced in age. They know how things work. They know the way the whole, the whole you know, labor and pregnancy thing works. They're not thinking they're going to have a baby. I think they were probably praying for the Messiah, for the consolation of Israel to come. The angel says, your prayer's been answered. Your Messiah is coming. And oh, by the way, your wife is going to have a baby, which is a real, really incredible proof that the Messiah is coming. And he goes on to say, this baby's going to be a joy. This baby's going to cause rejoicing for many. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. The Holy Spirit's going to be in him before he's even born. Can you imagine Zachariah being in there by the altar? He's now even a little bit more distracted by that. Like, what? Like, Elizabeth is going to be pregnant? Like, how is this even going to happen in her advanced age? His mind's going to wander. He's going to dream. And then there's these special requirements also he's got to be aware of. Like, he can't drink strong drink or wine. May, may have been a Nazarite vow, kind of like Samson, but it doesn't mention the haircut. He gives, John, he gives Zachariah John's purpose, right? And that purpose is to be the forerunner of the Lord's Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. See, God had been promising this Messiah for, for, for generations. I mean, even so far back as Genesis chapter 3, we see the need and the prediction of the prophecy of a Messiah. Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and part of God's curse on them is that I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God speaking to Satan saying, someday you're going to get it. Genesis 12, we're talking, God's talking to, to Abraham, giving him this promise that I'm going to bless the nations through you. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's not really clear yet what this is meaning, but these are subtle prophecies of a Messiah to come. It gets a little bit more clear as we get to Isaiah, Isaiah 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into our world. God promised from the very beginning that he's going to send a solution. He's going to send a Messiah. And we, we see this progressive revelation through the Old Testament. This is going to happen. And just before we find this 400 silent years in the book of Malachi, God says, I'm going to, in the future, prepare your hearts for this Messiah by sending you a forerunner. Malachi 4, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then insert 425 years or so. We jump back into our passage. Verse 17 it says this, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Gabriel saying to Zechariah, God told you back. Remember Malachi, your, your prophet Malachi told you this over 400 years ago? Well, well this is the forerunner and, and, and your wife is going to bear him. God says, I'm going, to be do, I'm going to do this. He told them back in, in Malachi, be watching, be waiting, prepare your hearts for this. Now, 400 years is a long time. And, and as a bit of an aside, I think it's important to note too, as, as parents, those generations had to pass on this news to the next generation again and again. And as parents, it's our duty, it's our job. Our first disciples are our own children. We need to bring them up. And we have a wonderful children's ministry here at James North. But that's secondary in your children's lives. You as parents are the ones who need to be building into them. And coming along, we'll come alongside and work with you as we help you train and bring up your own kids. So Gabriel announces this to Zechariah. Zechariah, of course, was afraid. And his response is, it's, it's, it's a little subtle, but he says this, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Notice he said he's old, but his wife isn't. Smart man. 
how shall I know this? There's a little bit of a disbelief here, and, and I kind of understand his question. Like I said earlier, Zachariah and Elizabeth know how this birth thing works. They've seen many people go through it. They know that people their age just don't get pregnant. We're going to learn next week about a similar visitation and a similar response, but different. When Gabriel visits Mary, he tells Mary, you're going to be the mother of the, the Messiah. Her question is subtly different. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? They both questioned the angel. Zechariah questioned, Mary questioned. But Zechariah's chastised, we're going to see, and Mary's blessed. Zechariah's questioning that it could even happen. How is this even possible? My, my wife is old. Sorry, she's advanced in age. Mary's not questioning that. She's saying, well, great, how's it going to happen? Like, I'm, not, I'm a virgin, but go for it. Like, let's do this. It's a subtle but important distinction. He's too, he feels like he's too old. Maybe a little dumbfounded. But Mary says, I believe it will happen even if I don't know how. And so the angel gives Zechariah some evidence. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you the good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. He's distracted by being unable to communicate now. Stop and think about that for a second, too. Like, th this is the news that his wife is going to be pregnant, and he's going to be unable to communicate silent for that whole time. How's he going to communicate that news to Elizabeth? I mean, there's no texting, there's no email. I don't think there was American Sign Language back then. But somehow he was able to communicate to his, his wife and to the people of what's going on. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. People were outside praying, wondering what is taking him so long? Like, has something happened to Zechariah? Is he okay in there? As he goes home and he sees Elizabeth and he's trying to communicate to her what has happened. I don't know if that might have been the first game of charades. Is that possible? But somehow he communicated to, to Elizabeth what's going on. Verse 24, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I think it sounds like a little bit like a, a bit of relief in Elizabeth, right? I, I've been barren all these years, didn't expect to be, to be able to conceive and to bear a child, and yet here I am in my advanced age. The Lord has done this for me. She didn't have a visitation like Zachariah did. She didn't have an angel tell her. 
but nonetheless, she rejoiced at what the Lord has done. We're going to skip through the story of Mary. We'll hear that next week. In verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give, to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. It's interesting, they're making signs to Zechariah. He couldn't speak. Now, potentially he couldn't hear as well, but they're making signs to him nonetheless. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. The community came together that day to name this child. And they all kind of expected this would be a, a name of like Zachariah. Like that's the father's name. Of course you'll name him after his father. And, and really Zachariah is a good name. The, the, the name Zachariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. It's a good reminder every morning as Elizabeth wakes up and she, she sees her husband for the first time today and says, good morning, Zachariah. She's reminded that the Lord remembers. It would be a good name. But Gabriel said, no, his name is going to be John. Elizabeth said his name is John. Zechariah confirmed his name is John. It's another good name. John means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Now, I believe this whole Christmas story is a whole picture of God's grace to us. Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel when he first heard the news they're going to have a child. But I'm pretty sure he believes it now. He's seeing it. The baby's here. His distractedness led to a time of discipline. He couldn't speak. And in that time, I kind of want to believe he had the time to stop and consider the Messiah. Not his own child. Well, yes, his own child, but also the Messiah that was coming. He was in awe of Yahweh for blessing them with a child, and more so just because of who he is. Distraction, to discipline, to obedience, to awe. After nine months, Zachariah gets his voice back. And the first thing he does is he prophesies and praises God. Verse 67, after his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah could have had that time of discipline where he could have got bitter towards God. But I think in that time, he saw the awe of God. And as this child is born, he is now praising God and blessing the son he's been given. John's purpose is to point to the Christ. Not, not so much to the baby in the manger, but to the adult, the man Christ. I mean, by the time John became an adult, Jesus was not far behind him. And so the Christ had already come, the one who was going to save them. So John was going to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. He was going to prepare their hearts for the one who was coming behind him, the one who could ultimately save them. John called them to repentance, to a baptism of repentance, so that they could be ready to meet the Messiah. And really, John is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Malachi and also from Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's that one crying in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. God had been planning all along for this man to come. God was the one who worked through John. He had prepared John's heart to welcome the Christ himself. And he used John to prepare the hearts of others to receive the Christ. Now, not everyone understood. Not everyone heeded the call. In fact, some came and he, he thought, they thought he was just some crazy man out in the desert. Let's go see what this guy's doing. Go have a good laugh. He's out there eating locusts and, and honey. And he's out there dunking people underwater. And they didn't believe. And they continued to live their distracted lives. They were following the rules made by men. See, John wasn't subtle about his message either. I mean, he called them a brood of vipers. He asked them how they should know that they should flee the coming wrath. Those folks had been distracted and fooled. They didn't really want to know the truth. Mark Twain once said, and I know Mark Twain gets attributed a lot of things, he said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. You see that? It's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. You teach someone something enough, they're going to hold on to it and believe it, even if it's not true. All it takes is a consistent, wrong, and misdirected message to sink in. It's difficult to turn that around. Even with evidence, even with truth. So some of those Jews had, had their, allowed their hearts to become distracted by the man-made rules. Yes, they believed the Messiah would come someday, but did they really believe he would come in their lifetime? So many of us have allowed our hearts to be distracted by the slow, the consistent messaging of Christmas in our culture. Christmas is about family. Christmas is about Santa or presents or concerts or events. But of course, we say it's all in the name of the baby in the manger. Our desires shift slowly and steadily, and we kind of don't even see it happening. We're unknowing. 
mean, adding to our distractions in a year like this, we have two wars happening in our world. We have uncertainty in the financial market leading to soaring grocery costs and mortgage rates. I mean, it's no wonder we find our hearts are distracted at this time and it's all throughout the year. We're weary. We're worn. We're in need of a slowdown for our souls. Can I ask you a question? Would you, would you make a simple This year, will you take time to wonder? Will you take time to wonder? Let's not get to Boxing Day this year and wonder where the time went. Instead of wondering after the fact, why not prepare our hearts in the season? Let's not cram everything into the last minute. Let's take time to reflect on the beauty of the incarnation. The marvel that that God became man and lived among us. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the trappings of a Christmas holiday about Jesus without ever spending time with Jesus. Let's make this year different on purpose. And that's going to look different for each of us individually for sure. And maybe it means for you is taking the time to slowly ingest the Christmas story in each of the Gospels. Read it. Like really read it. Reread it. Read it in different translations. Have it read to you. But truly take in the Christ Christ of this Christmas. Or maybe for you it's better to sit and stare at a fire. I mean, they're great to have a fire in your house. You can sit and sort of look at it and just sort of let your mind wander about Christ, about about Jesus, about the baby in the manger. Even better if you can do it outside in a fire pit, especially with snow around. There's nothing quite like a winter fire. But take the time to sit and contemplate the Christ. But see, none of that's going to help if it's just something added to an already full to-do list. But it's imperative that we sacrifice the good for the better. You can't fix your distracted heart on your own. We can't do that. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us. And it's wonderful that when Jesus did leave this earth, he sent the Holy Spirit to come be our comforter, to walk with us, to work in us, to work through us. And this season, let him work in you to prepare your heart for Christmas. You really just have to be willing and able for him to do that. Take that time. Step back and consider the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you so much for this time of year when we can celebrate the birth of Jesus. May we not get caught up, though, in the celebrations around Jesus, but may we be in constant awareness of the baby in the manger, recognizing why he came, not just to be born, but to live and to die for the sins of all people. 
So this Christmas, Lord, would you help us take in the awe of Christmas that we might step back and recognize who Jesus is and what he came for. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.